Advent is a time full of mystery and wonder and hope. As I mentioned last week, our series during this season drew inspiration from uh, the story of Christ's coming as told by Charles Wesley's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And this morning, we hear how the hope of Israel's strength and consolation is fulfilled in him and how that impacts our renewing work in the world. And so what I want you to hear is how unwavering the hope in this passage is against all objections, all obstacles. God is center stage. And the heart of this passage is how hope-filled the message of Christ's coming is. Not in a delusional kind of wishful thinking, pain doesn't really exist sort of way, but actually a real hope that doesn't disappoint. Because hope is something that we sorely need right now. I mean, particularly in a strange kind of year that's been full of disappointment, right? Things that we've longed for haven't happened. We've suffered loss and displacement, maybe even shaken our, our trust in God's goodness. Well, it's not always a bad thing to have your faith shaken. Sometimes disillusionment only tells you that the things that you had put stock in were an illusion and not in God himself. And so that period of disillusionment allows us to actually recalibrate our longings toward God and not snatching for hope in all kinds of other places. And there's been a lot of snatching for hope in other places this year for sure. Advent and Christmas can be like that, hope in a kind of experience. But hope isn't something we can manufacture. Hope isn't found in a vaccine. It isn't found in a political process. It isn't found in everything going back to the way that it was. No, hope is only found in the one who is leading us toward his kingdom by the route that he chooses because he's the one who knows the way. And with that, let us hear the word of hope from this morning's scripture passage. This morning's scripture passage comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. From a time when Israel waited in exile, longing to return to the familiar, people of God, hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The word of the Lord. On Saturday, April 26, 1986, engineers had scheduled what was meant to be a routine safety test at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. But a fatal design flaw that was intentionally hidden in the RBMK reactor and an unexpected 10-hour delay led to an uncontrolled chain reaction, which ruptured the core and caused a steam explosion to send irradiated graphite through the roof of the plant and nuclear contamination into the air for nine days straight. A research firm in Kiev labeled the Chernobyl disaster as the largest anthropogenic disaster in the history of humankind, which is another way of saying that it was a disaster of our own making. Those same researchers estimate that around 5 million citizens of the former USSR, including 3 million in Ukraine, suffered as a result. Thousands were forced to evacuate the nearby town of Pripyat, and scientists estimate that the area itself won't be inhabitable for somewhere between 320 and 20,000 years. But what makes the story tragic is that it didn't have to happen this way. It was an entirely self-imposed disaster. Pride caused the chief engineer of the plant to force an unprepared operating crew to move forward with the test. And the desire to project strength and competency caused the government to conceal a glaring design flaw in how the reactor was cooled. And that flaw in the design was exposed in a moment. But the flaw in the people, the flaw in the ideology, had been steadily building behind the scenes for years. And the lingering impact of those flaws will last for generations. Even the land itself will need time to heal. The prophets make it clear that Israel's time in Babylonian captivity is this kind of self-inflicted pain that's going to mark them for generations. It didn't have to happen this way. The Anglican priest Sam Wells says that Israel's story is shaped by God's involvement with them in two places. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses leads them into freedom in the promised land. And in that story, freedom comes as a gift. And the big question is, what will the people do with it? Will they pursue God's shalom and flourishing? Or will their vision get crowded out by other things, other nations, other desires, other gods? Fast forward a few hundred years, the people are in Babylon where they sit in exile and they learn aspects of God's character there that they hadn't had to come to grips with before. And the prophet tells them now that it is time to go home. Will they return with a new sense of who they are and who God is? And if so, the question still remains, what will the people do with it? Will they settle into freedom or settle into something else, something less? Egypt and Babylon, these, these two stories, they rhyme with each other. 
And like all stories told over generations, they create a horizon of possibility connected to and shaped by the stories that have been told before. But there's a big difference. In Egypt, the people were taken as slaves. They came to the land as a result of famine. And they did well, too well, apparently, because they became a threat to Pharaoh, and so he put them in chains in order to keep the people down. And whenever we tell the story of Egypt in the church, we identify with the oppressed. I mean, our, our hearts break with the people's lament. Our anger rises at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. These stories appeal to and shape our sense of justice. God is on the side of the oppressed. He steps in to set things right. But Babylon's a different kind of story. It's a time of suffering and pain to be sure, but it's a suffering that comes about because the people reject God, because they choose a different path, because they want the kingdom. They just don't want the king. And so we don't really know who to identify with in a story like that. I mean, a story like that is kind of awkward, right? We would rather chalk up Israel's destruction to military power and to the might of the empire. I mean, that's a story that makes sense to us. After all, they were a small kingdom. It was a different weight class altogether. Israel against Babylon is not like Ali versus Frazier. It's like Kevin Hart versus The Rock. But the Bible isn't ever really concerned about the size of the enemy. David slays Goliath. That's just how God does things. No, the prophets make it clear that the flaw in the people had been building for generations. The people turned from the God who once delivered them and from the freedom and shalom that he offered. And God said, after a while, okay. My guess is somewhere over the years, You've encountered suffering and pain that could have been avoided, that was entirely self-inflicted. I mean, we spend a lot of time rehashing and rehearsing the pain that comes as a result of the things that others have done to us. We know all about the, the pain and the resentment that comes from the damage brought from the outside. We have spent time in Egypt for sure. But Isaiah isn't crying out to God about life in Egypt. He's talking about life in Babylon. He's bringing to God the pain that the people have brought upon themselves, self-imposed pain. I don't know what that's like for you. Maybe you've caused some damage along the way that felt as visible as a nuclear meltdown. Whether it took place in public, a, a messy end to a marriage, a, a termination that you had to kind of awkwardly explain to your coworkers, or an addiction that caused your family to wither. For a lot of us, though, the damage takes place behind closed doors. It's something hidden, something only known to you and to a few others. Something that it were, if it were somehow projected onto the wall of the movie screen of your life for others to see, you would be sure that people would steer clear of the radiation. And you wonder if you're going to spend your whole life hiding, you know, kind of looking over your shoulder, constantly figuring out how you can throw others, those closest to you, off the scent. And it feels like you built a prison for yourself, like you put yourself in exile, but the, the cost of freedom, you say, it's, it's just too high. No one would understand your story. You're not even sure you can explain it to yourself. Well, if that's you, Isaiah's words are for you. Comfort, 
comfort my people, says your God. Words first directed toward exiles in Babylon, but words directed to exiles ever since. Now, there are all kinds of reasons that this would have been a hard word for Israel to hear. There are all kinds of obstacles before them. For one, they made a mess of things. Their sin created all kinds of fallout. For Israel, turning away from God took the form of hurt done to others, years of disregarding the poor and the oppressed within their own borders, and the impact that that had on their hearts and minds, but most of all, the grief that it brought to the heart of God. But in addition to the pain, there's also the lingering effects of the damage, the lasting effects of what's been broken. For God's people, the pain was being alienated from the one who gave them hope, who gave them a future. And the damage was life in exile, a thousand miles away from everything familiar. But here, God promises to restore both. Cry to Jerusalem that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid. The word here is sabaha. It's, it's borrowed from military service. And so the image is, is good news to those whose lives have been hardened by years of hard service on the front lines. And a message comes to them, your time has ended, you can go home. Which is to say that your sins have been forgiven and the consequences have been healed. That's the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness deals with the pain of the offense. But after that, there is all kinds of damage that needs to be restored. In the words of William Sloan Coffin, the gospel always declares, thy sins are forgiven before it says, arise and walk. Reconciliation is about dealing with the pain of the explosion. Sometimes the damage of the fallout takes longer to heal. Sometimes the ground can't be inhabited for years. Israel faces obstacles in the way of receiving the comfort that God offers. It is a long journey from where they are in exile to the home that only exists in stories passed down. And the space between is occupied by mountains and rough terrain. We can't see the way from here. Which is a way of saying that our sin has put us in such a place that even God's forgiveness isn't enough to bring us back. I mean, we tell ourselves that all the time. You don't know the hurt that I've caused. There's no way back for me. Or even if I could receive God's forgiveness, I'm only a half step away from ruining it all over again. I want to change. But you just, you don't know how deep this stuff runs in my family. But to every single one of these obstacles, God declares, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. In other words, you don't need to worry about the road back. Everything will be made smooth. And nothing you do is going to remove the obstacles from the path. No, the word of hope here is that God is sending out a crew ready to make a highway straight to your home. But even with the sin forgiven and the road made ready, there's still another obstacle. 
Sometimes we just don't have the strength to take the first step toward reconciliation. We can't face the future even if it looks better. If it's up to us in our own strength, we're tired. We say, along with Isaiah, all people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Surely we are like the grass. Maybe to you, this has felt like a year in exile, like you've been living in some kind of digital Babylon. Not necessarily as punishment, but in a way it's removed you from the things that brought comfort, from the routines that gave shape to your life. Feel like you've been left to languish and the world around you seems so strange. Even thinking about a road back is exhausting. I mean, you see the challenges. You, you long for a better future, but thinking about the steps between here and there, it just seems overwhelming. What does the journey even look like? Will I even recognize it? Will it even feel familiar to me? What does a word of hope and comfort look like to people who are waiting, not sure what they're waiting for? But this too is no obstacle for God who says, yes, the grass fades and the flowers wither, but my word endures forever. It is not up for you and up to you to make the journey home in your own strength. You're gonna do this in my strength. To pinch a few lines from the end of the chapter, God says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. In the end, the only obstacle is fear. Fear and the wonder if God is really good. Can God really bring me back? Can he really restore what is broken? And sometimes it's, it's really hard to change the script we have been rehearsing in our own heads. We, we get used to reciting the lines where we have made a mess of things, that that's just the way that things are, the world is the way the world is, and God is content to leave it that way. And even if we can somehow face ourselves, facing God is a different story. And so we just kind of keep our head down. But what would we see if we looked up? When we look upon the sovereign Lord who comes with power, who is able to level the mountains and fill the valleys and repair what is broken, we'll see the good shepherd. The one who tends his flock like a shepherd, who gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. The one who gently leads those that have young. And like a good shepherd, He will not force us to journey back any faster than we can. And when you can't make the way back, he will carry you along the road that he has made. No, this shepherd, his love and his power are held together. I love how the Old Testament scholar Kathleen O'Connor puts it. God's strength appears in the barely thinkable power of gentleness. In tender and caring presence, in intimacy such as a shepherd expresses when gathering the wounded scattered flock. This God draws together the scattered lambs of Judah and rebuilds Zion. This is who God is. And this is how God announces that the exile is over. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, there are consequences, but you are forgiven and I will be with you to rebuild. Yes, even if you've got a long way from where you should be, I will make a way from here to there. 
Yes, you're tired. And you're as hurt as the people you've hurt along the way, but the journey will be in my strength, not in yours. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But love is strong as death, and I'll carry you when your strength fails. There's something about these images working together to shape a picture of renewal. Uh, The rocks and hills being made smooth, the flowers and the grass, even the sheep and the lambs will be restored. Everything will come roaring back to life. Heaven and nature sing, new life is on the way. I was struck by an article in the National Geographic a couple weeks ago. Turns out that 30 years without any people has made the exclusion zone around Chernobyl an unlikely place where wildlife is flourishing. In the midst of disaster, hope and newness and life is springing up from the very ground. It's no accident that Mark puts these words about preparing the way of the Lord in the mouth of John the Baptist as a way of letting us know that in Jesus, all of these promises are coming true. In him, our exile is over. Jesus is coming to return life to the world, which is why at Advent, we can hear the words, comfort, comfort my people. God is telling us that all of the pain that we have been carrying, all of the broken promises, all of the broken relationships that have shaped our stories along the way, that keep our eyes looking down on the ground to hear the good news. Advent is a time to hear that you have served your term. The penalty has been paid. And yes, there may be mountains and valleys between where you're going and where you are, but walk on because the mountains themselves will be made low and the valleys will be lifted up. God is making a highway for us to travel upon. And you may feel weak, but you will be given strength. You may be weary, but he will tend to you like a shepherd. And when you can go no further, he will carry you home. But make no mistake. The journey isn't just that you will have a home. It's that you'll be part of the story of letting the world know that the comfort that God offers is open to all people. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Friends, the good news of Advent isn't about what you need to do. It's about what God has already done. He comes. He rules. He feeds. He gathers. He carries. He leads and all that's left for us to do is to walk beside the one who made the path and to lift up our voices to get up high upon the mountain and tell the world that there is no reason to stay in exile for even a moment longer because it is not the place you were made for advent marks the time when we announce the arrival of the one who has completed the service for you that your sin has been paid for and god does not want you in exile for a moment longer and now as we come to the table we proclaim that our hope is found in Christ the good shepherd who leads and guides us who draws us to himself and who in his body has completed our service and paid our penalty 
as the risen one, seated by the Father at work, reconciling all things, making a way forward out of no way. As we remember his coming and his dying in this meal, we anticipate with joy his coming again. And as we remember, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together and he took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again in great power. And so, friends, as we receive this meal, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Come, friends, the table is set. Come and be comforted by the one born to set his people free that we might find our rest in him. Amen. Amen. Thank you.